0: Porkchop Sandwiches!
1: Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The legion of
0: DUDES DUDE! His dudeness, Duder, El Duderino... DUDE! DUDE!
1: Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe!
2: Where's John?
1: What's all the excitement?
2: condo. We can't find John! He was heading that way. Oh no! Check that old refrigerator! It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Remember, never get in anything that could close up and trap you,
0: like an old trunk or an abandoned refrigerator. Now we know.
2: And knowing is half the battle. GI JOE. And now, here's the dudes.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Legion of Dudes podcast. This is John. Tonight I have with me Adam Umac, Russell Latham, and Ken Morgan. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's up? Hey. Evening. This is like a very special Legion of Dudes episode. Monday. Except, right, but it's not on after school and nobody gets touched inappropriately. Uh-huh. Um, well, not yet. We figured we should do a G.I. Joe show, and very luckily, uh, Russell and I were talking that we kind of like the new IDW book, of G.I. Joe and, and Russ got me to buy it. I liked it a lot. And uh, like we kind of said on episode 50, I shoot an email out to, like, everything that we're going to cover and just see, you know, kind of throwing poo-poo at the wall and seeing what sticks. And, um... Robert Atkins likes our poo-poo, apparently. He is uh, a <laughs> listener. <laughs> he's a listener of the show, and, and for anybody who doesn't know, he's the um, artist for the new IDW really? G.I. Joe book. Yes, and he's kind of responsible for all of the character redesigns since this relaunch and everything. So it, it worked out perfectly. The movie came out. We had the interview. We'd read the book. A couple of us have seen the movie, so we figured we're going to hold Captain America Part Two off For one more week, we're going to jump in here with a little G.I. Joe talk. So that's the way it is,
0: and so say we all. So say we all. Hey, before we jump in, um, I just want to jump back to last week's episode 50 real quick, because I I was listening back to that show, and we missed something in one of our voicemails that I I think we need to uh, acknowledge at the very least for a second, because uh, especially consider we're doing G.I. Joe. Um, If you remember when uh, we got a voicemail from Clerk Boy, the the on-the-road trucker, and when we came out of that voicemail, we went right to answering his question. Something we didn't talk on, and I'm really embarrassed or sad or upset that we didn't mention it. Did you catch that he said he sent a DVD with all of our shows on it to his friends in Iraq?
1: yeah you yeah. know i did after the after the fact it yeah it's like i caught it after the fact
0: yeah so i i want to go back to that and just say you know first off you know thank you to anyone who might be listening to this you know later on uh who's in iraq you know just to think that first off you are over there giving your lives but you know you need to unwind and you know get some downtime and you know we're one of the things that maybe some of these guys go to to uh to relax is, is us, just us talking about comic books. You know, I don't think there's anything that can be less important, especially considering what's going on, but that's really cool that we can do that. But I'll just say thank you in general for, for what they're doing. So I just felt that need to be touched on, uh, at least briefly.
1: Absolutely, and what yeah. a perfect... Uh, th- the planets are aligning. We have a G.I. Joe show as we thank our uh, military forces.
0: So thank you for that indulgence of mine.
3: No,
1: thank you. Yeah,
0: thanks for pointing it out.
1: So speaking of episode fifty, do we want to get to a question or two that we ran out of time for?
3: Yeah, I think I think we've got a couple that could be real quickie, so we'll just we'll do those. And um, so we left off with um, some questions from Sean Pryor. So we'll start with his first question. So on episode fifty, we did what was our favorite show that was not canceled soon enough. So Sean asked a question of what's our favorite television show that was canceled too soon. So I will go first, and I will say Firefly, probably before somebody else grabs it. So that that, that was, you know, obviously canceled way too soon. You know, I, I, I think it's it's pretty well known that most of us have pretty much enjoyed the show and um, loved
2: the movie follow-up, but really wish they'd be able to come back to it. Favorite TV show that ended too soon? Um, that would have to be Arrested Development. Fox, and in their infinite wisdom, uh, despite any, you know, critical awards or, I mean... Any uh, you know um, comedy awards that they got? I mean, they got like ensemble, best comedy, all that kind of stuff. Not just the Golden Globes either, you know. Um, they canceled the rest of the development uh, two and a half seasons into it, and um, I would probably say the same with uh, Firefly. And I've only seen that thing once. I'm not like a fan, you know what I mean? So,
0: um,
2: you know, I'd have to go with the rest of the development. T- such a good show, and thank goodness they're doing a movie out of it.
0: I'm gonna go with Angel, the Buffy spinoff, just because uh, it was a really good show, but. I don't mind it having only gone five seasons, but just the fact that they uh, they they killed it when there was less than like I think there's like only like nine episodes left to shoot, so they had this this whole story they were building up to, so now instead of building towards a, a, a season finale, they had to build towards a series finale and they left a lot of things hanging, uh, really rushed through a lot of stuff trying to just kinda change the direction of the overall story. It was really unfair to them. If they had gone into season five knowing it was gonna be the last season, they could have done Joss could have done a much better job scripting and plotting out that whole season. So it's not so much that it ended, but that it wasn't uh, it wasn't given a proper or fair ending. Pick up
3: Angel after the fall to find
0: out what happened. Yeah, hey, the the, the comics from IDW and then if even the Buffy comics at Dark Horse uh, are great, picking up where their respective shows left off.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, I have a 1A and a 1B. <laughs> One. <laughs> I just want to mention the second one, um, because I, I think it went totally under the radar. But my first choice is definitely Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, I'm a big Terminator fan, uh, so I'd probably watch it anyway if it were crap. But it definitely got better and better every show. And, and like when it ended, it I felt like it was just hitting its stride. Yeah. It's kind of like the Clone Wars in that it's that big gap that's never going to be covered in the movies. So it's perfect for an ongoing television show to fill in that gap. I just I just thought it was really going in the right direction. I was sorry to hear that, you know, they doomed it on Friday night or whatever they did and and, uh, and then cancelled it. And and quickly my one B is the Blade television series on Spike T V. Did anybody try watching that, the one season it was on? No, I've never seen it.
3: Yeah, that's that's another one that really picked up as it went along.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't like the pilot was probably the weakest of the series, which is obviously like doomsday on TV. People are going to maybe check out the pilot that are on the fence. And, you know, if it's no good and then it just declined, the ratings declined from there. But the show really picked up the main actor who's like an ex-rapper, I think. um, Sticky Fingers from Onyx was was Blade. And he was kind of like finding his way in acting as the show went along and again it really it, it kind of got doomed in a hurry and then they were talking about maybe picking up somewhere else but it never did so now you can only see Jill Wagner on Mercury car commercials I guess
3: that and that show Wipeout I don't know if you watch it so my mother-in-law loves that, that show Wipeout on uh, ABC it's kind of like kind of it's kinda like Ninja Warrior except with stupid people but, but she's the host of that show so yeah
1: so that's it Sean I hope that answers well enough what do you think? One more or are we moving on?
3: Let's do one more just lightning round style. No okay, cool. no explanations, no nothing. We'll just go because this will be a quick one. What's the one thing from your childhood that you wish you still had today? And I'm just gonna say unopened
2: Star Wars figures. Uh, Kenner's Superpowers collection.
0: Crap. <laughs> no, you know what I wish you know what I wish I had? The Han Solo action figure, the original one from the very first Star Wars movie. I had it. I lost it. I have no idea where it is. It actually looked like Harrison Ford. Every single version since then, including the one that came out for Empire Strikes Back three years later, did not look like Harrison Ford. And I I just don't know where it is. I would love to have that specific figure again.
1: Um, I wish I still had the record album Spider-Man show. I don't know what to call it. It was a full length record yeah. album. It wasn't like a little e you know, it wasn't like a little forty five. It was a full record length album that opened up and had like a comic book on the inside and it told the Spider Man story. Kind of like an audio book really.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, Batman.
1: yeah, but it told like three different Spider Man stories, or maybe it was two, like on each side of the record and everything. Yeah,
0: I had something it, like that, yeah. Yeah,
1: the art nice. was like really cool and it was big. Like when you opened the album you know the full inside was like a comic book, and I don't think it went like panel for panel with the audio recording. I think they gave you like the high points in the mm-hmm. in the art, but man, I played the heck out of that.
0: I had a I had a Hulk one like that that did it read panel by panel, yeah, every dialogue box, every you know uh, uh, story you know box narration box, it read it straight through, and it was uh, it was pretty cool, you know it. Maybe it helped me learn to read because I was following along with it, just like some of the stuff you see for your kids now. But, yeah, I remember something like that. Yeah, I think I had the Hulk, too.
1: And I think I had also Mickey Mouse Disco, but I don't (laughs) wish I had that. Yeah. Very good. So we're ready for a little G.I. Joe? Yeah. Okay, so I figured we'd start off by going around and talking about our G.I. Joe experiences uh whether you played with the toys read the old marvel comics or watched the cartoon uh whatever your experiences were so why don't we start with mr Umac?
2: Um, i inherited my gi joes um right around uh, i guess when i was in elementary school first of all i got i inherited the collection from my dad um an interesting uh thing uh going backwards a little bit when i got you know the first couple of waves in the 80s when when uh the joes came back was that um we um, playing at my uh, grandmother's farm uh, on the hillside uh, one summer. My uh, cousin and I found a bunch of my dad's old GI Joes, actually buried in like the hillside that uh, he forgot to pick up when he was a kid. So like there were GI Joes like buried in my grandparents' farm for probably like I guess like 30, 35 years or so. <laughs> and so we found the rest of my dad's collection that day, um, which was kind of a, a cool trip. But um, I collected uh, GI Joes probably from the initial re-release in the 80s probably up to about, I would say probably, uh, 88, 89. Right when they started to do, like, the, the cousins of the cousins of, uh, Zartan and the Dreadnoughts. When they were really, like, reaching for, like, uh, tertiary, uh, G.I. Joe and Cobra figures. That was, in retrospect, in retrospect, probably a good place to stop anyway.
0: I'm going with, uh, it, the cartoons and the toys, that was about it. I didn't even know that there was a comic series uh, when I was... You know, in the stuff is just about the, the TV show. And we had, you know, a bunch of toys. I mean, all the kids in the neighborhood, we all had different things. So collectively, we had, like, almost every toy that was out there we could play with. You know, there's always that one kid who had the, you know, his parents bought him toys instead of giving him love. So he had the flag and the pit and everything else. So there was definitely uh, definitely a lot of that going around. hate those kids. <laughs> <laughs> Russ?
3: I never collected any of the toys. I was kind of a big Star Wars you know geek when i was a little kid and kind of when gi joe really came around and started to get popular i was kind of growing out of the toy thing um getting a little older you know and and was pretty wound up with star wars to, to switch camps and and go to gi joe and definitely couldn't afford to collect both um so i kind of let that skip past me but i really liked the cartoon i mean as, as a as a preteen, i guess you could say into into early teen i watched the cartoon quite a bit and i always thought it was cool because it. it it was very episodic. There were a lot of these little five-part miniseries that were pretty cool. A lot of cliffhangers, a lot of cool villains. So I, I really enjoyed the cartoon. Um, and then the comics—I didn't get any of the comics, but um, it was kind of there were about four or five kids of us in the neighborhood, and we'll kind of hear this a little bit in the interview. But a couple of them got the Joe comics, and then you know one one kid got the New Mutants, and I had the X-Men and some of the other stuff. So we did a lot of passing around and reading of each other's books. So I was able to read some of that stuff in the in the late 80s um, Marvel Joe run, and it was good stuff, but I never um, collected any of it. That's pretty much the limit of my experience up until recently, picking up the IDW. I I didn't jump into the Devil's Due because I knew that picked up from the Marvel run, and they continued on, so um, I think IDW supposedly is going to get the rights to reprint all of it, which will be interesting because they'll be actually reprinting, if I'm not mistaken, the Marvel run and the Devil's Due, so that would be kind of cool to go back and and be able to get and read because uh, it was it was pretty good stuff. Larry Hammer wrote, you know, I think darn near all of it back in the day. So, um, so you know, good stuff. But that's, that's pretty much the extent of it for me.
1: Yeah, I think I'm in, mean, well, age-wise, I think we're all in the same boat um, except for Adam. I remember it being just after my prime time for playing with that stuff. Like maybe we were, I don't know, 9 or 10 or so when all the toys hit big. And like you said, I was like I had all my Star Wars stuff, and I was starting to get into other things, and I, I really didn't collect the toys. But interestingly enough, I got lucky enough that in my neighborhood in the early '80s, there was already a comic book store, like straight comic book store. He he was there for a total of 40 years. The guy just ended up uh, selling. Russ and I have talked about this a couple of times, maybe on the show. I'm not sure, but so this was like really the only like legitimate comic book store. It wasn't part of like anything else. He didn't sell other things. It was just for that. And I found number. I, I walked in and found GI Joe number one. I guess I walked in when it came out. And I remember being like astounded at all the different characters and you know the you know the names and their specialties and everything. And I just thought it was fantastic. By the time I got back to the comic book store. You know, no sign of number two, no sign of number three, no sign of number four. And through word of mouth around the neighborhood, like we found a kid with number two and we found a kid with number three. (laughs) And like we had the first six issues covered over like five guys. And I just I just remember, like Russ was saying, you know, that's when you sat down in somebody's room and kind of threw them back and forth and. Shared and traded and and whatever, and I just remember like sitting and reading like the first six or whatever and and just soaking in all of the I don't even know if you can call it continuity but soaking in all of the different characters and their specialties and how cool was it that there was a ninja you know and and he didn't speak you know it so it was great, but that's really where it stopped for me i didn't I don't remember watching the cartoon, I didn't read any of the stuff after that. And I really just jumped back in on this IDW relaunch, and I guess you know the the movie hype helped a little bit as well. But that's interesting how we all have a uh, different—you know—Adam was straight toys, and you guys were more cartoon. And I actually read some of the comic books. It's uh, it was pretty widely—you know—there were a lot of different ways to get your GI Joe.
2: It's really com- uh, comparable to Star Wars in a lot of cases because I guess on my end with the merchandise a little more and some good resources for merchandise are uh, yojo.com and histank, H-I-S-S-T-A-N-K dot com. With the merchandise, like you can really, really compare that to Star Wars because what other creation could possibly come up with so many different, you know, permutations or whatever or variants or characters in different uniforms? other than Star Wars or G.I. Joe. And uh, actually, I was kind of, you know, going down memory lane and taking a look at um, some of the old uh, characters and stuff. And I I had not realized this, but they actually named one character Tollbooth. Can you guess what his job was? (laughs) It's like they they actually had like a pencil pusher, Joe. It was pretty crazy. I
1: guess that leads us to uh, the new IDW books. And and obviously it was part of the gigantic um, hype machine for for the movie, coming out, but IDW has actually come out with three, I guess, Russ, are they all ongoing?
3: Yes. So well, I think Diablo yeah, Cobra is a mini, but Origins and the regular book are monthly. Right,
1: so right now there's three monthlies coming out. Whether I know the Cobra um, trade was just solicited. I don't know if that's continuing or if it was a six-issue maybe. So they've put out three books. I've only read the... The main title, uh, which is written by Chuck Dixon with the art by Robert Atkins, who we're going to get to in a minute, and I really like the way they went about it they didn 't just step in with cobra they they have the Joes you know solving a case, so to speak, and, and chasing some arms dealers down and stuff and Cobra is like only a word that's mentioned, and there's speculation as to whether they really exist or what they are exactly. So they're kind of slow building the, the lead into to Cobra being the enemy, which I really appreciated because they could have just thrown all that at you, you know, for the sake of the movie. So I kind of like the way they've built to that. Russ, I know you've read it as well.
3: Yeah, I like the slow build. Um, I think it would have been easy out to just you know, throw everybody in there in issue one and to let it fly. So to, to slowly kind of add characters and then have the multiple books, you know, I haven't read the other two. I'm going to wait for trade to get those. But I'm assuming that given the characters involved in everything, that if you read them all, you're going to get your good fill of of all these characters um, in total by reading all the books. Well,
0: we'll get to the movie after the interview. But um, in the movie itself, there's the, I, I don't think they ever even name the organization as Cobra. In fact, even then, they don't even know who they're dealing with or what's quite going on. The only other prequel of comics that I read was the one based on the character profile on Destro, which I thought was very good and really... Got me even more interested in the movie, but the, they seem, they all seem to be, uh, to be very good.
1: I think everyone's on the same page with not, you know, letting it all hang out there right, right off the bat. You know, I think the plan with IDW and Hasbro, I guess, and, and the movie company as well, is that they're gonna, they're gonna slow build this and, and, and try to get some mileage out of it. And not only in the book did they not throw Cobra at you. They also didn't just give you a ton of cameos of G.I. Joes for the sake of doing it. I mean, it would have been very easily to have 10 guys in the background where you could play Where's Waldo? Oh, that's, uh, you know,
0: I don't even know many Joe names. Slaughter but. And Slaughter's over there. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's still around. You know, there, there's an issue of the uh, Who Had a Last Dark Horse, I think. No, uh, Devils, Devils Do. Devils Do, thank you. Devils Do had it. And uh, there was an issue. I want to say it was 25, maybe or something like that. It was the beginning of their World War Three arc. It was a um, like a full cover front and back, and you open it up, and it was every single character who was ever a Joe. and Slaughter was there, Refrigerator Perry was there. You know, Every Joe from the cartoon series and the comics were, were, were represented. I have that issue somewhere here. It's a, it's a pretty cool cover.
1: I, I take back my answer to the last question. I want my Refrigerator Perry G.I. Joe back.
0: You know what? We were recording... <laughs> um, earlier this week uh we recorded tool to grow up our episode uh which is gi joe that just came out a couple days ago and um art showed me he had his refrigerator Perry figure during during the uh during the episode
2: there were tons of mail aways in the 80s especially with kenner and mattel and hasbro because like the sergeant slaughter was a mail away the refrigerator Perry was a mail away and like for the i think i had mentioned just the kenner superpowers collection like you had the mail away for the uh clark kent and glasses and blue uh uh, spirit suit with uh, the Dilbert tie. It's it's really interesting just to look at it, like, not only from a Star Wars perspective, but like from a DC Comics perspective, too, with all the reissues. And as far as the merch and stuff that's been coming out lately, um, I, I will tell you that uh, I was actually at Toys R Us a couple of days ago and just checking out um, the new stuff and they're really taking their time on release dates for that. So I think what you had said, um, John, about them really pacing themselves is uh, definitely happening um, on the marketplace, too. Interesting.
3: The fact that Refrigerator Perry was allowed to score a touchdown in Super Bowl twenty and not Walter Payton.
1: <laughs> Travesty. Um,
3: star, scars me to this day, so that's not um, as big of a Bears fan as I am. That, that is a pox on the Bears legacy. Uh,
1: <laughs> I think on that note, we're going to play our interview with Robert Atkins. Again, he's the artist for uh, G.I. Joe 1 through 6, and I think he also did the... Snake Eyes. What's the name of that book, Russ? Snake. De- was it declassified?
3: Yes, that was the, the Devil's Due. He did. He did some stuff for Devil's Due as well. That's you know prior to some of the declassified stuff before IDW got the license. So he was definitely no stranger to G.I. Joe. You know when IDW picked it up, and I think his his work on the Devil's Due is what is what led them to pick him up for IDW.
1: Yeah, and it's very interesting because he's really become the. I mean, he redesigned, you know, the Joes for for this age. And you know, I noticed. I don't know how early all of this got in, into the process. We probably should have asked him, but you know, they used his snake eyes design in the movie. I mean, you know, the visor look and everything. He's credited with the redesign, so pretty cool stuff. And the lips? Yeah, no, I don't think he. I don't think in the book they have the lips, but no. that was that was disturbing. But we'll save that <laughs> for after. Uh, we'll, we'll save that for after the interview. So here we go with Robert Atkins. Hello. Hey, Robert. It's John from Legion of Dudes.
4: Hey, how's it going, man?
1: Good, man. How are you?
4: Good. I'm up at the uh, Chicago Convention, and uh, so I'm just in my hotel room, and there's people, so I'm totally going to sit in the bathroom.
1: Oh, nice. (laughs) 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 I just wanted you to know, oh, I have Dan and uh, Russ on the line, too, Robert.
4: Hey guys. <laughs> hey, how are you?
1: How's it going? I, I just want you to know I wanna I wanna have it right out in the open. I'm recording already, so this is all definitely going in. <laughs> <laughs> like, all
4: right, let's start off the show with too much information.
2: <laughs> it's cool. I'm but in the bathroom, bathroom, bathroom too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, Dan's not even at a con and he's in the bathroom, so <laughs> like I do
4: all my podcasts
1: on the toilet. <laughs> so how's the um how's the show out there?
4: Oh, it's interesting. This year is really different. Um, I don't know exactly when it happened, but Marvel and DC pulled out of the show, the Wizard World Chicago show.
3: Really? So they
4: are not set up here. and they're probably uh,
3: gearing up for the new one.
4: Yeah, I know that they're definitely committed for the one in April. Um, I mean, yeah, I, don't, I don't know any of the behind-the-scenes politics that went into all that, but... Um, yeah, so there's hardly any publishers here. Like, Aspen is here, a lot of the smaller... Publishers like Ape and Moonstone and stuff, but it's mostly retailers, you know, exhibitors, and uh, Artist Alley just ballooned like three times the size, so there's tons of artists here, which is cool. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Do you enjoy cons in general, like the whole big scene, or...?
4: I do. Um, Well, I I really... It gives me a chance to, one, just get out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also just to kind of meet people who are, you know, reading the books that I'm working on... um, it's a really great networking situation for a freelancer. Uh, I mean, like today, I was just sitting at my artist alley table and ended up talking for 45 minutes with a few Marvel editors that happened to be there. So it's like you just never know when things are kind of falling to lap. Or like a couple of weeks ago, I was in San Diego and all kinds of stuff happened. So and I was just sitting at an artist alley table. <laughs> so it worked right. out good.
1: Now, do you find with the. Um with your work on G.I. Joe and like the movie coming out and stuff, do you find like more people in Artist's Sally, like looking for G.I. Joe stuff or, you oh, know? definitely.
4: Well, yeah, G.I. Joe is this kind of an enigma of a property um, where you have a few different fan bases that all combine to be the demographic of the people who are reading the book. Uh, you know, you have the people, who, the nostalgic fans who grew up on it, really appreciated it. Um, and that can be, even be divided into say, three groups of, of fans. But then you also have, like, there's a lot of military people who read the book, and this is the only comic book that they buy. And uh, so you have those readers, um, or, you know, and that's a little bit of a crossover, too, with the nostalgic, where they don't buy any of the books, but just the ones, because they kind of grew up on it, you know. Um, and then the really nice thing with how IDW kind of marketed the whole relaunch, and um, there's a lot of new re- readers who really haven't read G.I. Joe before, and are picking it up now, so... Uh, at the conventions, you get all these people coming to one place, and um, you know, it's just a good chance to meet them all, and, and for me to see firsthand who's reading the book, you know? And right. uh, typically, like like I say, G.I. Joe's kind of a strange enigma. Like, it's not Marvel, it's not DC, but the yeah. fan base are typically avid collectors, you know, so for me, that works out well as far as original art sales, and if I sell prints oh, I or sketchbooks. Something they like to get their hands on that kind of stuff. So it's, it's good as an artist to be a part of it, and especially now with all the hype with the movie and the Resolute cartoon and the new Toy lines and stuff.
1: Awesome. Well, I guess I kind of jumped the gun. <laughs> we have Robert Atkins on the phone, everyone, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <Hey guys. laughs> being, that, being that it started off so well, we just kind of went with it. Maybe you can start us off by telling everybody, you know, how you got started and, and what you've done up to this point you know, that brought you to the G.I. Joe stuff and the other things that you're working on now?
4: Uh, yeah, um, oh, okay, so yeah, I went down to Savannah College of Art and Design, and I got my master's degree down there, which is, um uh, I got my undergrad at Illinois State, and just kind of like general art. And i you know, I'd been into comics quite a bit growing up, and I kind of figured it was something I wanted to do, but I didn't really know about, at all, how to go about getting into it. And so as I, you know, graduated my undergrad, I saw that my dad had a you know, master's degree program in sequential art, so I went down there, and it was the only place I really applied. and just had a blast, had a really great experience down at the school. About three months before I graduated, one of my professors, my inking professor, John Lowe, he's in college for about 15, 18 years or so. Quite a bit of stuff over at D.C. So right as I was about to graduate, um, there there's a couple artists working over at Marvel that needed just some help getting a deadline done. You know, and so I I did a lot of the backgrounds for some X Men books and then that you know kinda of got my foot in the door and met with some editors that way. And that was about five years ago. And since then, um well another great thing about you know going down to the school was a lot of the people I graduated with or went to school with are now working professionals. And so you know, the benefit to that is you have a built in kind of professional network after you graduate. So one of the guys I graduated with became the editor over at Devil's Due, and about four years ago he called me up and I was like, "Hey, Mike, how's it going?" You know, just chatting I just started talking to my friend. He's like, "Hey, do you want a job?" <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that was uh, Snake Eyes Declassified. That was the very first thing I did, like a And uh, since then, I've just kind of worked on and off over at Devil's Due, working on GI Joe and Forgotten Realms. I've worked with the Heroes TV show with the like online comics.
1: You kind of jumped in with two feet. I mean, you, out of college, you were doing backgrounds for Marvel and, and right into Devil's Due and, and the G.I. Joe property. So it was kind of like trial by fire.
4: Yeah. If, yeah well, right as I graduated, you quickly learned that you're only going to make as much money as you draw. You know, so your free time basically becomes drawing so you can pay bills. And, yeah, it's it's a slow process because you kind of have to build up, you know, some some work experience before people really trust you, obviously, with figure better jobs and uh, you know but if you can be on time and if you are at a certain quality level and you can keep that consistency there will always be work there will always be comic book work for people like that so I I figured that out really fast so you know it was in my best interest to figure out where I could easily do a page a day you know turn my work in on time even if that means (laughs) pulling all nighters and doing what you need to but and that's and that's worked out really well and from Devil's Do, you know, like I was saying, right about the same time I was doing Forgotten Realms this was about two years ago. Uh, I was doing some Heroes work and I did some special project stuff over at Marvel with like Iron Man and uh, a couple other things. And then, right as I was finishing that up, I landed the, the Joe series with IDW. So that was about a year ago.
3: I'm a I'm a big fan of, this is Russ, I'm a big fan of the uh, Uncanny X cast as well. And I know you got you listen to their show and uh Actually, that's, that's kind of how, how you kind of came to the forefront for me. I heard you on their show and kind of checked out your stuff. Um, and one of the things I found interesting was that you kind of had your, if, if I remember this right, you kind of had your pick of the letter when it came to the Joe books here. You could have taken the the, the regular monthly like you're taking with Joe, Chuck Dixon, but you also could have taken the, uh, um, I guess it's the Origins book that Larry Holland's writing. So I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, be, being a fan of the material and, and, you know, Hammer being kind of the, the guru of GI Joe, as it were, to, to you know, yeah. to kind of stick it out and, and want to do the main book. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
4: Um, yeah, was, yeah. Was Andy Schmidt he gave me the the choice, um, which is an awesome position to be in. And yeah. uh, but it was a hard choice. You know, it was like work with Larry Hama or you work with Chuck Dixon. I'm like, this is awesome. You know, I could, you can't ask for a better situation. So uh, I went and went with the Chuck Dixon story just because of the, the nature of the storyline kind of seemed to fit my art style better. And I would talked with Andy quite a bit about it and it just seemed to fit. But then also, and, and of course, I was also presented with the opportunity to work on the movie property stuff. and um, sure. the, I just, you know, I wanted to draw like the classic Joe's that I knew growing up. So that was a big part of my decision there. And uh working with Chuck was, you know, his writing style actually fits really well with how I, like his scripts are just outstanding because you, you literally read read through the page, and I'm instantly getting images in my head of what the panel looks like. And I just do a quick thumbnail off to the side, and that that ends up being the you see on the page. Like, I, I hardly do any multiple roughs or multiple thumbnails of the pages. I just, you know, I read straight to see it. And, you know, do a little, kind of doodle on the side of the script, and I just go straight to the page You know, to finish it.
0: Wow.
3: How detailed are his scripts? I mean, is he, is he very specific in what he's looking for art-wise, or is he more just kind of throwing the dialogue out there and giving you some general setup and kind of leaving it up to the artist to, to frame it and figure out you know how to how to lay it out?
4: Uh, he's got a really great combination of of the both. Um, working on Larry Hama scripts, he does the old Marvel style where he just writes out a paragraph. So this is going to happen on the page. Go to it. You know, and you're like, wow. As an artist, that's a really cool challenge. Um, and but Larry will also like fill the scripts with reference photos and links and pictures of himself doing different katas and stuff. And you're like, dude, this is awesome, you know, for reference. Um, Whereas Chuck, he'll definitely be like, you know, page one, panel one, this happens, this is what's said. But rarely will he say, I want to see a six-panel grid, or, you know, I want you to lay it out this way, or even pick this camera angle. You know, it's great because, you know, he's got enough faith in the artist to... That he, you know, that's your interpret it. You know, I'm just kind of giving you a groundwork or a framework to build from. And you know, he's just he. I've had a chance to meet with him, and and he's a really great guy to talk to. Have you guys ever met him at conventions or anything?
1: No, I haven't had the opportunity. I have not. No.
4: Um, he doesn't do a ton. Um, I met him. I mean, he lives in Florida, so he, he'll usually do MegaCon or like the FX International show. And we're actually both doing a show with Larry Emma. Um, it's called the VA Comic Con. It's in Richmond, Virginia in November. But, so that'll be kind of a really big kind of J I Joe show there. But, yeah, it's just really easy to talk to. And, you know, he was just saying, you know, when I met him, he was just like, you know, it's I like to leave it open because if I start throwing my opinion in there of how I see it, you know, I might restrict the artist from making a decision that ends up being a better one. Or, you know, I can't be so committed to my stage of the process and I'm Unwilling to see how it can be you know, emphasized or you know, added to, and that's the whole thing about comics. It's very much an assembly line process. You, know, you have to collaborate. You can't be a you can't sit there and be a prima donna and say, you know, this is my line work. Don't mess it up or anything like that.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the redesign of, of the characters? Is that something that you do first? And show to Chuck, and then he writes, or where does when you're redesigning characters like you did to kind of update them or and such, can you tell us like where in the process that falls in and like
4: how you go about that? Yeah, well, when I first started, that was um, I was kind of waiting for scripts to get approved, so I, was, I just went through the cast that we knew we were going to be using and did initial character design. And that's kind of where right. I laid out a general style guide of how these guys would look, where I was taking a lot of their classic look. And just updating them to a certain extent, you know, uh, making them very practical, like buckles look like they actually buckled, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, uh, you know, applying that stuff to the designs kind of created a style guide for new designs down the road. Uh, so, anytime we introduce a new character in a script, you know, Chuck just goes and writes the scripts. He knows what character he know he knows the characters and he knows which ones he wants to use and when he wants to. So I usually just get a script and I just kinda of look through if there's any <clears throat> I'll do a quick character design and establish their look before I get on the interior pages. Like just recently with issue ten, there's a really big kind of snake eyes uh, viper, you know, cobra viper fight. It's just awesome. And so, you know, we hadn't really established like a, a, a viper design. So Shannon Gallant, he's the regular series artist for issues seven through twelve. And he kind of established stuff in his pages, and then I did some designs, and you know, we kind of just merged the two to see what works best. And, but it's, it's kind of a free-floating process where it doesn't all happen at the same time every time, but you know, kind of typically we work together to find out what design works well and stuff.
1: I find it interesting that all this redesign and the relaunch was happening, you know, to coincide with the movie almost, and I'm sure that's all part of the plan. Does Hasbro? Hasbro's in control of all the characters, right? All the property.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but pretty. Um, yeah, they, they are definitely in charge of everything. Every page, every design has to be approved by Hasbro before you move forward. Wow. So I kind of answer your question too, like how that applies to the movie is just simply, well, luckily, you know, again, I'm kind of doing the more classic series, so I'm really not. Hasbro has never dictated to me or through my editors to say, draw this more like the movie, or let's make so-and-so or this character look this way because it's like in the movie.
0: I think instead,
4: Hasbro comes up with the decision, we want to do with this character. That becomes established, and then through the movie, through the video game, through the comics, that becomes the standard. As far as like the movie release and stuff, yeah, that just became a big marketing plan from the beginning. Uh, when, when IDW was going to launch everything in January with the idea that six months later we would have a trade and the movie comes out, you know, it's not (laughs) just a coincidence. So, Right. And they did a a great job putting all that together, uh, staggering out those three initial series each month to kind of build interest. They all end at the same time. So we've got a cool culmination of those three stories in the main storyline now. And so now you we're able to kind of deal with Cobra. We're able to, uh, we have a little more backstory with the Larry Hammer stories, um, and that all gets kind of worked into Chuck's story as well. So, it, there's a lot of discussion between the writers with Hasbro to see how we want to move forward. There's a lot of meetings and stuff that the editors and writers go through. Hasbro is interesting. They can be really, they can be really picky and sometimes they let just let things go. And when I was working at Devil's Do, I think there was just literally different people in charge of licensing at the time. So, just like any business, you know, you have committees and those committees rotate out, you know, you got new people in charge of making decisions. And when IDW came across the property license, you know, new people were in charge. And I think in general, you know, Hasbro was aware that their demographic grew up.
1: Right. <laughs> but, you
4: know, they, yeah, their mass market are now kind of late teens through the 30s, people who are familiar with who Joe is or or would appreciate really cool stories. and stuff. You know, in general, they're willing to allow more than they were, say, five years ago.
3: I love your. I mean, of course, the art. I love the style in the book. It's what I, the way I kind of describe it, and it's it's kind of a a cross between like a traditional style book, but you know, kind of a cartoony style as well. I mean, you could easily, and and I definitely don't mean that as a negative. I could definitely see your art style translating into you know to an animated, um, you know, to what you'd see on TV in an animated um, fashion, and I just I think that's. That's a really cool take, and I think it, it comes out very well um, on the page um, also.
4: Well, I think um, it was kind of purposely done when we, when we launched it. I was, I was The way I've seen the three series is that, like I was saying earlier, you can even break up those nostalgic fans into three groups. And, and this became clear to me through the three different titles. You, with the main title, I think it appeals mostly to those people who are longtime Joe fans, but mostly remember the cartoon, um, haven't necessarily been reading up on every single issue of G.I. Joe that's come out, you know, and uh, it's a great kind of re- reintroduction with the Joes, you know, and so it's kind of done in the style that's not super cartoony because we didn't want it to look, uh, you know, too lighthearted or too, you know, with a younger age in mind or anything like that, you know. So I kind of left the line work a little bit more open, which then also allowed the colorist to, come in with a palette, you know, that um, that wasn't dark and gritty, necessarily. Right, right. Um, yeah, so we're appealing to those kind of longtime fans that um, are kind of, but still new to the comics again. Uh, with, with Cobra, I think you're dealing with the longtime fans who just need something new. You know what I mean? They just want to read something that isn't just a rehash of something they've read before. That's uh, not the dog on anything that, like, Origins or the regular series is doing, but, you know, that's a specific brand of fans. Or the, the thing that Cobra's done really well is bring in new fans, people that are into, like, say, 24 or, you know, these kind of other types of spy or espionage properties. You know, they, that's a real good foot in the door into the Joe world, you know, with the Cobra title. Uh, and then with Origins, it's like those diehard Larry Ham fans. You know, they get their fix on... Yeah his take on these characters once again. So it's like, who wouldn't want to read that if you're a Joe fan? So it's nice because you, know, you can either read all three and really enjoy what each book has to offer, or you can kind of pick the one that suits, you know, your fan needs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. So, what, so when it came to style, you know, obviously the Cobra book is a lot darker, a lot grittier. The origins just feels new and fresh kind of with the approach and the way that, the, that it's drawn. And when I approached it, I wanted the detail to be in there because I'm very specific when it comes to making sure a weapon looks like a weapon or a vehicle looks like it would work. You know, uh, so that I want the detail to be in there, but I don't want it to be too dark that you don't see it. And I think what that ends up combining to leave the line work fairly open, you know, for the colorist to decide the palette.
3: Yeah, I'm kind of like in a, a, a hybrid kind of fan, I guess. I remember, you know, as a kid, I didn't collect the Marvel run, but you know, I was, I was kind of an X Men guy, so you know, a couple of my buddies were big, were big Joe fans. So you know, this, that was back when you kind of traded books around. So I, I kind of read them or read at them, I should say. You know, way back uh, in the day. But you know, I'm also kind of I have that freaky collector mentality. So if I can't start from the beginning with something, I tend to um, to shy away from it. I've, I've since, I'm I'm kind of recovering from that uh,
4: as I get older <laughs> and,
3: and more mature.
1: We're working um, on them anyway.
3: Yeah, You're a yeah, recovery uh, collector. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things I can appreciate is, is being able to, you know, and watching the cartoons, of, of, you know, of course as a kid too, but you know, now becoming an older and adult to be able to appreciate starting from scratch and starting fresh and not have to worry about all that hung up continuity and everything. But still, you know, when I see characters on the page, um, even some of the more obscure ones, they kind of you know rattle around in my brain and, and bring up those memories. So I think it's cool that. That IDW took the the stance of saying, okay, we're just going to draw the line in the sand here. We're going to start fresh. You know, we're gonna you know we're gonna redo it. So I think that was a, a pretty cool choice for them to make.
4: Yeah, I think um, I you know I don't know actually if it was IDW's choice to go that route or if it was Hasbro's choice. Um, a point. Often, you know, it's it's a fine line between the two. They have a lot of meetings and they come to decisions together. Um, you know, Hasbro kind of wanted to start new themselves with the property, I mean, with the movie, video game, you know, cartoons, like it's all like a new approach. It's a new take on G.I. Joe for a new generation idea. You know, that's their marketing plan. So when it came to let's do some more comics, you know, I think it it was in Hasbro's best interest to start fresh. But then also, you know, if if you were IDW, that sounds like a great idea because, you know, story-wise you're not uh, impeded by decisions that were made previous to you. Uh, right. But you can still keep the, the quality of characters the same. You know, the character interactions are, you know, for the most part, like the relationships are the same and things that make the characters who they are and what we remember is, is all there. And so, like, that kind of stuff isn't being changed. But whether or not somebody was brainwashed three times, like, we don't have to deal with that <laughs> anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, so as a publisher, that sounds like a good good plan. You know, it's just, uh, it's an easy way to move forward. You can establish it. And then it can also be quantified as your run. You know, your, you know, uh, co-ownership of the property, I guess you could say, with Hasbro. So, um, you know, yeah, it's it's a good idea for them to be able to start fresh. And and like I said, you know, we want to keep the characters fairly the same. But, you know, for fans like yourself that, you know, you see, say, Mutt and Junkyard in the background, you're like, hey, I remember those guys, you know, but... We didn't want to just kinda of start doing cameos for the sake of it. You know, if we if somebody was in the background there was a reason for it, kinda
3: of thing. Yeah, that's one one of the things I appreciated reading you know, reading this you know, the I, I I got the first trade and reading through it is it wasn't uh in your face, you know, kind of cameo like you were saying where, you know, you yeah. call characters are, yeah. you know, taking a full splash page, you know, every every fourth or fifth page just to say, Here I am So so yeah, again, I <laughs> I appreciate, you know, kinda of what they're you know, what you guys are, are both doing with that.
4: Yeah. Well, and I think this this first arc that I worked on, um, there's a a lot of mixed reactions from fans. I mean, for the most part, it was really successful. I mean, certainly IDW has been benefiting from it. Um, Fan response that I've heard, um, and and I really try to make myself quite available on various message boards or through my own website or or whatnot, going to conventions and things. The feedback I've really gotten is that some people felt like maybe that first arc was kind of slow moving, and I can see where they're coming from. I think it reads really well as a trade, and typically, I think Chuck's work, he approaches it that way. Um, you know, and at the same time, th- there's a couple factors that went into that. You know, we we wanted to very purposefully roll out who the enemy was. You know, we wanted to do that through the Cobra miniseries. Well, if for the Cobra miniseries, you know, with Cobra, what does that leave the main series to focus on? Well, everything but Cobra, which is, Introducing GI Joe, how they operate, what the new facilities look like, what's the chain of command—you know—all of these things are answers or questions that can be answered. And I think all of that gets accomplished in the first arc. And also, we get to really see kind of who Destro is and how he becomes like this character that we are familiar with. But I think it reads pretty well It's like a kind of a standalone six issues of something. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to. But it's interesting, because Larry typically will start you in a story just right in the middle of the action, and which is kind of cool, because ask asking, like, well, wait, wait, what's going on? You know, who are these guys? And and then he proceeds to answer all those questions throughout the story. And uh, and uh, Chuck, I think, likes to build up questions first, you know what I mean? Like, as in, But slowly, like, who's this, and what are they doing? And you kind of see how the parts play together, and then you build up to that kind of classic, kind of climax, and... You know, and you kind of work from there story-wise. So I think with with the three titles combined, you get a pretty good overview of, like, IDW's version of G.I. Joe right now. But moving forward, as of issue seven, like, it really picks up. It's it's like that classic G.I. Joe versus Cobra type stuff.
1: One thing about your designs, just to kind of go back to the plan of keeping things uh, starting over but keeping things the same, one of the things I like about your designs, your character designs, is just that, you know, you... You you didn't have to put, you know, you could take the spandex pants off Scarlet, but, you know, everybody still knows it's Scarlet. And you could dress Baroness however you like, but she's got the glasses, you know? So it just, I really got that feeling of I knew who everybody was. And Snake Eyes, of course, most of the classic design, you know, you tinkered with the visor a little bit, but everybody, you know, you could tell who everybody was by looking at them, but none of them were the same or or dated you know so it felt new but familiar at the same time if that makes any sense
4: no yeah i mean that was certainly my idea or approach i kind of looked at various uh versions of toys and i looked at uh you know obviously what had come before in the comics and cartoons even and kind of i got it was great because i got to pick and choose my favorite elements of all of them um but keeping in mind like what elements are synonymous with that character And uh, so that's why you can kind of fiddle with those costumes and it's very easy to see who's who. Um, And and when I had the opportunity, I chose a more classic version, like say with, well, he hasn't appeared in the books yet, but like with the Storm Shadow design, it was pretty close to his original and and, and so forth. But, um, you know, the other thing was, like the Joes, again, we wanted to kind of take a practical approach. So like say at the beginning of issue, I believe it's issue... 3, let's say that's right, <clears throat> or issue 4, but, like, right we had have that big splash page of, like, Duke and Beachhead and Rock and Roll all running at you, because they're going to try and take on these Spider-Bots things. You know, it's like Duke's not in his classic, you know, uh, button-up shirt, you know, with his kind of bandolier pouches and stuff, um, because he's about to go into a firefight, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, I mean, it mean, sense to me, he should have a flak jacket, he should have some protection and armor if he's going to be shot at, but at the same time, he still pushes his sleeves up. yeah, you know, right. it's like, well, that's Duke. You know what I mean? It's like, if it does, if I change my shirt, I'm going to wear it the same way, kind of thing, you know? So it's like, you can do little things to kind of establish the character, establish the little tendencies, or either how they dress or what they use, you know, what weapons they use or what they prefer. Like typically, you know, beachhead's going to grab whatever weapon's around, you know, or, or Flint. He's going to grab whatever weapon's around, but he's typically going to have a shotgun weapon. You know, so it's like, yeah, that's what he's familiar with. That's what he likes to use. So, you know, there's elements of the design. There's elements of the character that you can just kind of keep you know, in view or inside, sight or, or see them use and, and and then just like whether it's obvious or not, it's something you see as that character. With the with, uh, Snake Eyes design, I actually had a turnaround, a couple turnarounds for him and Storm Shadow, but specifically for his because it was a very complicated design, and the purpose for that is I knew that he'd be on a lot of solo missions in the first few arcs, and I thought as a you know he's, he's always that kind of ninja commando mix, right, so I was like, if he's gonna be a commando on a solo mission, he should be prepared for just about anything that comes, so I put a lot of thought into the design of his combat pack, and the, he doesn't have pouches just for pouches' sake, yeah, you know? <laughs> he's got pockets for a reason right. But so, like, that's where his C4 goes. That's where his poncho is in his backpack. You know, that's how his Uzi clips on. Like, um, you know, so when it comes to design, I, I usually keep that kind of stuff in mind as well. And uh, it, it looks busy, but it's not just for the sake of it, or for the sake of detail. I thought, realistically, if a guy's going to be on his own, what is he going to need to survive, you know? So that kind of went into the design
1: there. Is it difficult drawing all these characters that don't have a face? You know, like, to, to convey... Emotion or or state of mind or anything when you know like Snake Eyes for instance has the visor and Destro really has like a metal head, you know is it is it different or difficult to draw those kinds of characters or is it bet easier for you or?
4: Uh, it is difficult in, especially with Snake Eyes he's not even talking, you know so I get in the script what what Chuck wants Snake Eyes to convey and that is entirely body language without facial expression. Yeah, he's one. He is like very much one of the hardest characters to draw. So I try and get that across either through you know, definitely through body language, but also through lighting. And, you know, what kind of dramatic lighting? What kind of camera angles am I using? You know, are we shooting from like a like a worm's eye point of view where we're looking up at him and making them look really intimidating or even heroic? You know, or you know, just you know, there's there's elements of this type of acting if you want to think of it that way that you can do as, like, if I'm the director, you know, how am I going to make this actor act to convey this this message? So, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely a challenge, but it was a fun challenge, and certainly I like drawing Snake Eyes enough that it was it was pretty cool to do. I haven't really had to deal with, like, Over Commander story-wise yet. We're just kind of getting into the old Destro thing. So. The most experience I've had with that is so far, storytelling-wise, has been with Snake Eyes, and that's been a lot of fun, so I've enjoyed it. But it's definitely a challenge.
3: You mentioned earlier about, you know, being out at the cons and meeting with the folks and being able to you know, sell some original pages. So is, are, are you, have you gone digital or you still do hand-drawn or do you use some sort of hybrid where you hand-draw? You know, I know some folks that are um, completely digital still take at least one or two pages and hand-draw yeah. it so they can sell that art. You know, what what's your, I guess, uh, preferred
4: method? Um, well, I, I definitely do everything traditionally. Um with pencil and even when I, I do, I ink my own purse. Uh, and it's the reason why I don't ink the book myself. is just time constraints, but, uh, yeah, I definitely do traditional. And for me, the the biggest benefit to that is really, you know, the secondary art market, um, sure. especially with C H O. You know, I think the only benefit to doing it digitally is, uh, like the undo button, you know what I mean? Like you can go back and do revisions pretty quickly and if you make a mistake, you just go back and (laughs) act like it never happened, you know? Um, And while that would be a a nice benefit, you're completely cutting yourself out of secondary income. But, you know, um, even with that aside, you know, there are times where I'll scan in the page and actually with GI Joe, I just send the file over to the inker who lives over in Atlanta and he downloads it, you know, with, with minutes and print that out in, in a blue line and then ink over the blue. Well, so ultimately the image he's getting is a digital image. So I can pencil it however I need to, and I can scan it in. And a lot of times, kind of, you step back, you look at your art, and you can be a little more objective after you've scanned it in. and You see it up on the screen, you're like, oh, well, that head's too big, or you know, that doesn't work very well, or I could maybe compose this panel a little better. And there's some revisions you can do on just on a computer by... Moving pieces of your drawing around or resizing something, and that's a that's a lot of freedom there. That's really nice. I do like doing that because even after I've drawn it, it can save me a lot of time just to resize it in Photoshop than to have to completely redraw the whole panel or fix something that way. And like I said, when the inker gets it, you know, he doesn't know the difference. (laughs) I've been fiddling around (laughs) with it or whatever. So, but but then you know in that. Process. I guess when it comes to art collecting, I just have pencil pages. So a lot of my Jejo pages aren't ink. And then he has a whole set of the ink. So I'm still trying to figure out. It's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of artists. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a discussion now because the, the nice thing to publishers is that they save on FedEx costs and you save on the shipping time. You know, you don't have to wait to finish five to nine pages to ship it to somebody. You know, they get the page right. the same day. So uh, besides shipping costs, you know, you're saving time. So that's, that's yeah, that's a publisher's dream. Well, as artists, you know, typically an ink page will sell better than a pencil page. So, but you get more of the issue to yourself. You know, so it's an interesting kind of situation in the business right now. That some people like it, some people hate it. Typically, inkers grab their ink on the pencils. Because you're not sitting there looking at blue all day. You know, you get some of the little sketchiness that built up the image, and that can help you maybe kind of pick up on the inks a little better.
3: So I was kind of going back and looking through, you know, some of your, you know, chronologically, you know, what you've done, and it seemed like I guess in the, in some of your earlier days, you did some some inking as opposed to penciling. Um, so how does that? I mean, does does that make you more aware when you you know when you went back and like now you're doing a lot of pencils um, and and not inking? Does that does having been on that side of the table help prepare you for doing pencils? Does it make you more you know, appreciative of the job the inker has to do coming in behind somebody else's pencils or, you know, how does, I guess, how does that, you know, how does that process relate to what you're doing now?
4: Uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting ride. Um, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to kind of see that other side of it, uh, to get somebody else's pencils and then, you know, have to deal with uh, you know, interpreting that and not putting too much of my own style, say, into it, you know, but just trying to embellish what they've done with, you know, what they've done in mind, you know. Um, I did a lot of, when I first started at Devil's do like I did a few fill-in pencil jobs, and then I did like a quick fill-in inking job over Tim Seeley, and really the editor knew I could ink because we went to school together <laughs> and had an inking class together. Um, and so I uh, he like, hey, do you want to ink this? I'm like, heck yeah, you know. And actually, at the same time, right after I graduated SCAD, I moved up to North Carolina and joined an art studio at Tsunami Studios and the other members like Rick Ketchum Randy Green um, Steve Bird uh, Kelly Yates John Wyckoff there's people who have been inking and penciling and working in the industry all for years and I was working in the same studio room as Rick Ketchum who's been inking over at Marvel for over a dozen years and uh, I was doing you know helping him either do a fill-in page here or there just because he had a tight deadline or he had multiple books he was working on and he taught me a lot. Like, I learned a lot in school. I learned a lot of the foundations of the skill set I needed. But as as I moved into the studio, I was there every day, you know, working eight to ten hours a day with a veteran inker. And uh, he just taught me a lot, just how to handle the tools and the finesse involved. And and then also just, you know, how to deal with uh, collaborating on a project with an inker or with a penciler or, you know, with an inker. So I learned a lot there in the first two years, just uh from him kind of being a mentor, being a good friend, you know, just learning a lot from him. And then, so when I was offered the opportunity to start inking stuff at Devil's Due, I'd already been inking on and off, like ghosting, you know, other people's work for a little bit. So, you know, I wasn't ever credited for that stuff, but it was, you know, a good experience. So sure. when I came in to be able to ink Tim Seeley on stuff, um, we had a similar enough style that our approach, you know, it's not like I was needing to, certainly, I wasn't needing to change anything or, or it wasn't like my style was conflicting with what he does naturally. And so it, it, it actually, I thought it was a really good kind of partnership. And we did some special missions books together. I did a a few uh, covers and uh, America's Elitist together where he was penciling and I was inking and That seemed to work out really well and I enjoyed it. Uh, again, I'm still not the fastest thinker though. So <laughs> uh, it came to opportunities to, to pencil more um yeah, you know, I, I got like a six-issue run on Forgotten Realms, and that was going from pencils to color, so there wasn't even an inking process there. So I'd taken a lot of the things I learned about inking. Like the, the whole purpose of an inker is to separate the art, you know, create texture, create depth, and just the line art. So, you know, um, I was applying those concepts to my pencil stage and making it really nice and clean. Uh, working with line weights, trying to create texture with people and stuff like that, so that when it would translate, you know, hopefully a lot of that would carry over. So that that helps as well. But And then now, you know, when I have the opportunity to ink my own stuff, I enjoy too. And, and I, I try and kind of push myself and use new tools and new textures and kind of see how that can, can enhance as the best can.
3: Cool. You kind of talked a lot a bit about comics and art and stuff like that so i'm i'm always curious what people do you know the non-geek related you know stuff so to speak so i mean what (laughs) what kind of things do you like to do aside from you know superheroes and capes and tights and GI joe and pens and pencils and stuff like that um a lot yeah i
4: uh i just turned i just turned 30 this year a few weeks ago and uh, i remember that (laughs) yeah i don't (laughs) yeah um, yeah, so I've, I'm married. I've got two kids. I've got a three-year-old son and uh, a 10-month-old daughter. And so, you know, I just, I watch the kids during the day. And then my wife is a elementary school teacher. And so yeah. when she gets home from work, you know, we just have dinner and play, have a good time. And then I usually get to work, actually, about 8 o'clock, maybe 9 o'clock, and work to about 3 or 4 in the morning. Wow. And then uh, get up a few hours later <laughs> with the kids. <laughs>
1: So when you said the con gets you out of the house, you weren't kidding.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's like my wife thinks it's a vacation every time I leave, you know. And uh, but I end up just staying up. At like last night, I was I think I had an hour of sleep because I was doing commission sketches all night and was wow. going to the convention. The thing about a convention though is like uh, I can rebound a lot faster. Like I could only maybe if I sleep an hour or two a night throughout the convention, then I go to the show the next day and I'm excited. I get to meet people and. You know, just kind of, just the buzz of the convention. And then when I get home, I'm just, like, dead. I'm so dead on my feet. It usually takes me a few days to recover, at least. But um, I I just kind of, you know, I don't get a lot of sleep. (laughs) Usually (laughs) I end up just crashing eventually. But I like, like, you know, the thing about, especially being a comic artist, is, like, if if I have free time, I just like to draw. You know, it's like drawing something I can get paid for, you know, or, and I'm working on a creator-owned project as well, so I work a lot of, on that, but yeah, I, I play a lot of soccer, like if there's like a, you know, just a city league that I play on, and um, I, got a, I got a really big family, so I'm just, I live with a lot of family and do a lot of stuff with them, so.
1: Very cool. Is that the, um, the Elders of the Runestone, the project that you're working on?
4: Yeah, um, that, that all started with, uh, me, and, me and a buddy of mine, we were going to SCAD together, and he created the idea, you know, for a while. And, and then I just did some character designs while I was in school. And then just over the years, I developed the story a lot more, and I've kind of given some input. I've done a lot of the art that goes into it. And last year at CBA, we pitched it to a few small publishers and um, kind of got some feedback from them and decided to go with Vapor Entertainment. So they picked us up. So um, this, anyway, uh the first issue should be coming out, so early, early 2010, uh, will be, you know, that series will be coming out as well.
1: Can you talk about the premise a little bit? Uh, give us an idea.
4: Yeah, sure. It's, you know, kind of that uh, comparison pit, kind of like the Breakfast Club and Heroes, you know, all wrapped into one kind of thing. Where it's kind of a high school teen drama. Kids from all different social groups get thrown together, and. Kind of gain abilities because of the setting that they were in that doesn't necessarily mean they work well together or even like each other, but they're kind of all thrown into this situation at the same time um, you know it's it's, it's interesting because you're know, just really kind of focusing on the characters their interactions with each other, and uh, there's some really great kind of really cool concepts in there, but it takes a lot of you know uh bits of supernatural stories or like horror or uh you know, just kind of general drama but also kind of superheroish. It's not like capes and, cape and tights or anything, but um, it's like uh, kids with powers and dealing with that. So just kind of your, I guess, your classic coming of age, you know, dealt with the superhero type situation, but, um, yeah, but it's, so yeah, you know, so a lot's got into the design of it and, you know, kind of, I did with G.I. Joe, you know, so I, I put a lot of attention to, or try to put a lot of attention to the design and, and the those that kids live in and it's been a lot of fun, kind of building something up from scratch. Um, it's definitely its own beast. <laughs> Doing self-publishing, it's a crazy world. It's tough. It's really tough. But um, yeah, I'm sure you heard that from anybody who's dealing with small press stuff or trying to get their own book out.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. There's some some folks that that we've had on the show. Sean, I don't know if you know Sean Pryor, but he's he's a he's a friend of the show, and he's
4: you know yeah, with uh, was it PKD Media? Right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he, you know, we talked to him a lot about his trials and tribulations and his, uh, determination and, and getting his stuff out. So. so,
4: yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's interesting because especially with podcasts and the internet, message boards, people are, whether or not they're interested in putting their own book out, you know, you get a, a first, you know, like a front row seat and seeing what it takes to get this stuff done. And, you know, you have to deal with publishers and deadlines and how do you pay people to get stuff done? If you're able to pay at all, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's not easy to work for free on something. So that's always a big struggle. Um, it, it's really interesting to see I, – I guess we kind of moved right back into the geeky comic talk, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> yeah, it just happens, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, but oh, yeah. it, to me, it's really interesting to see where things are going to go digitally. I think that it's going to really affect the industry in the next five years. Because even now, uh, like say with IDW, they have the leading amount of downloads for the iPod right now. Through their Transformers and G.I. Joe, actually, has the apparently like the they're kind of in the lead as far as numbers go. But you know, Ape Entertainment is also exploring that, and so we're looking into that as, as a property through them. You know, it's it's a I don't think it's gonna kind of like kill the comic industry by any means. I think what it's gonna do is give you the best of both worlds. You know, say if you're putting out your single issues online, people can download it and read it just to get the story. Well, you're cutting all the cost of your your distribution overhead, your printing costs, you know, um, things like that. And you put it out there for a dollar or even for free. You get advertisers to sponsor you or something. Then that can generate money and finance. You don't have the overhead. And then you can publish a trade. Well, it's after your forces are out, you publish a trade. And people who like the property or want to kind of hold on to something when they read it, they have that available.
3: Yeah, I think that, you but know, we always talk about how things are, you know, th- there's a lot of concern about folks that wait for the trade, what that's going to do to the to the single issue, the monthly market. And I I right. can see where digital could be kind of that hybrid, where like you are talking, where, you know, you put out a low-cost monthly book with maybe some sponsorship behind it, you know, either through iPhones or freeze or, you know, Windows Mobile or iTunes or, you know, digital, you know, long box, whatever. And then, you right. know, for the folks, you know, I'm a big tactile guy, you know, and I think most of us that do this, this show here are tactile guys, you know, we want to feel the book in our hand and, you know, for, you know if you can, you know, then put out the trade, like you're saying, and then have that, you know, that, that portable media that you can take around is kind of an, an interesting, um, you know, way to, to, to kind of maybe tackle that
4: problem. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can put incentives in the trades for people who, have, who might, you know, it's, if you only have to spend a dollar for the story as it comes out monthly, just to read it, just to get into the characters, I'd be more willing to try four new books to read it online than to buy one book I haven't never read for $4, you know? Right. right. Um, and then, out of those four books I read online, say there's one I really like. Well, when that comes out on trade, it, the back end is full of, like, 12 pages of sketches and concept work and a commentary from the creators. Like I really get into that. So, I mean, I'll, I'll totally buy that trade on top of the, say, four bucks I paid into the single issues as opposed to paying, you know, $16 into those single issues and then rebuying the trade. You know, it's like, ah, I don't know. I think the system where it's at isn't the most effective. And once you start involving digital into that, there's just going to be a major change. And the way technology is moving, it's going to be within the next three to five years. I mean, if you think in that time, you're going to have a full-color Kindle about the size of a comic book in your hand. You just download the book into it, you know, you're still holding yeah. something that's the same size. You know, you're not dealing with iPod, you know, just getting in one panel at a time. You can see the whole page at once and, you know, scoot to the next page and
0: it's still a dollar. There is that yeah, rumored so, Mac tablet, you know, yeah. it's supposed to come out at some point <laughs> if they ever well, to decide everything. to unveil it.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, that's stuff's all in development. I mean, I, I don't have specifics or anything, but the publishers that I'm working with, they do. I mean they're working very closely with those people and they're on top of it you know this is this is going to be the next generation, So a small publisher all of a sudden gets on the same playing field as marvel and d c you know like some of some of you, know, you have downloads between thirty and hundred thousand on properties that people don't even know all of a sudden you can get sponsorship that competes with Marvel and d c sponsorship inside you know their ads in the books say for for instance say like uh Old Spice <laughs> or something. <laughs> You're going to put ad space in Spider-Man, right? Well, Old Spice knows that Spider-Man's going to sell 100,000 copies or so. And uh, well, all of a sudden, hey, we've got this new hip digital download thing. They're getting put in front of uh, 100,000 people, also on the same regular basis. Well, you know, let's let's get some ad space on this digital comic book. Well, all of a sudden, you've got this ad money that com- competes with Marvel and DC. That- you know what I'm saying, so, as a small publisher you're you're on a level playing field where you can then split the money that's coming from sponsorship and advertising just like you would profits if you're regularly selling hundred thousand books a month, you know
3: sure yeah, especially if you don't have the printing costs on top of it
4: exactly, yeah, I just you know I think there's too much money available in that direction for obviously it not to go that way, you know so i and I think it'll be just really a cool ride you know over the next. Like I said, you know, just in the next few years, see who takes advantage of it, who comes ahead, and yeah, has good
1: ideas. So, Robert, we don't want to we don't want to hold you up too much longer. We want you to be able to get some sleep so you can do some drawings <laughs> tomorrow. But uh, I, I guess the thing we have to finish with is: uh, Have you seen the movie? I
4: went to the
1: midnight showing last night. So was can, awesome! Oh, oh God, God, good, good. So good. <laughs> 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 the, the pause made me nervous for a second, but I'm. Going I <laughs> no, yeah, I.
4: I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, you know, for me, it was kind of, as I came out, I was like, you know, I kind of went into it with like a, like a term of disclaimer. I said, if, if I can believe that anything's possible. <laughs> I just kind of put that all aside. I can sit there and enjoy the film for what it was. I was thoroughly entertained. I was great. You know, there's some really cool action scenes. I thought generally, you know, like if you like the Transformer movies, or even just the first one. <laughs>
0: like, yeah, I'm, I'm in that category. <laughs> so I, I, you know, went in, I went into Transformers 2 with the same sort of like, you know, yeah. I'm just going to sit back and like this, and that didn't happen. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, yeah, with well, yeah, G.I. Joe, I, the way I see it is you get a very similar thrill ride. You know, there's a lot of, I think it was paced very well. You have a lot of great action scenes. You get to see Joes doing what they do. and uh, But I thought the story was a little better. That's the story. You, know, you get to you get to see a lot of character interaction and and you know what, you know you're gonna you're gonna hear a lot of fans who don't like it, I think because, you know, so much has changed from the source material and that's always the case with every <laughs> with every comic book movie that comes out. And you know, if you're the kind of guy who goes into a movie, thinking of it critically, you know, if you're like, All right, I'm gonna pick apart every plot hole in this story <laughs> like if you can't help but do that, then you know, you might go into that movie. And, you know, maybe need to see it a few times or just give up on it, you know. <laughs> but I went I went and I was, I really enjoyed it. I came out like happy, wanting to see it again and buy some toys. But I think they were successful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how the whole marketing went just from an, an outsider's point of view. I mean, you got trailer after trailer that just got bashed on the internet and nobody liked the trailers, how terrible this is gonna be. Then they don't screen it for critics. And then right. as it got a little closer, and a few reviews came out here and there. They showed it to a few specific people. All the reviews are glowing.
4: Have any of you guys seen it?
1: No, I haven't.
4: No, not yet.
1: I, this weekend, definitely. But I haven't been able to uh, get there.
4: Uh, well, I will say, maybe to the, this quiet some, some concern, possibly. All right. So all of these trailers, right, that you're saying are coming out. You know, you've got like accelerator suits, and you're like, why? You know. And you've got Damon Wayans.
2: <laughs> that was my big concern I saw Wayne's yeah. brother and I immediately went you know <laughs> so,
4: yeah everybody's like rolling their eyes you know And but the, the amazing thing is you know the accelerator suits is maybe 10 minutes of the movie like maybe yeah, that's what I heard as well yeah not a big part of the movie at all and, and David Wayne does a great job he really did like he didn't try and steal any scenes like his comedic timing was actually really good and I laughed out You heard it (laughs) here first. I guess, yeah, there you go.
1: (laughs) He's not a talking infant or anything like that. He's not a white girl.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, keep in mind, I've only had one hour of sleep in the last two days. So, like, that (laughs) might be affected by judgment to a certain extent. But, yeah, you know, I'd go on record saying I enjoyed it. It was very, very much an enjoyable film. And whether or not to keep the same director, that's a big thing. Um, I think I would really like to see a second movie, too, and see where they go from here, so... It, it leads it open that? to really explore stories.
3: So. Well, cool. I mean, I was a big fan of the Mummy movie, so you know, it's kind of like, yes, I think Summers did a good job with those. So, for me, he kind of, you know, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And like John was saying, you know, at first, everybody there was so much negative buzz, but yet I haven't seen a review that that has been really negative. I mean, most of it's been pretty positive, and you know, I think like you were saying, most of the fears have been quelled by saying. You know, hey, these things aren't, you know, in the forefront. They're not a big part of the movie. You know, that, that it's just a roller coaster, nonstop action ride. And for me, you know, that's, that's what I'm expecting going into it. I'm not expecting, you know, Dr. Zhivago or, you know, Citizen Kane. I'm expecting a bunch of stuff to get blown up and a bunch of people to get, you know, the shot beat out of it. So that, that's my <laughs> yeah. expectation going
4: in.
1: <laughs> and Ray Park kicking ass. Oh, dude. <laughs> so good. Yeah,
4: he's going to be at the show tomorrow, so I'm going to. Uh, yeah, we we actually worked out a deal with some, some Snake ice prints and stuff that people can get, you know, signed by him and, and nice. I can sign him and stuff. But, I, yeah, I'm excited to kind of tell him how awesome he was. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was really good. Uh,
1: well, man, we really appreciate you doing this.
4: Yeah, we're, no, we're doing no, hey, fine. Hey, guys, seriously, thanks for having me on. I've been listening to the show for forever, you know, so um, I was listening to Half yeah. Hour Wasted and then your guy's show came up and I actually met Jim for like two seconds out in New York and I don't think he remembers me but
1: Oh awesome. Yeah, I gotta rasp him. He definitely doesn't. He definitely doesn't. Oh,
4: heck no, he totally blew me off, man. I was like, Hey, I love your show. He's like, Thanks, and he turns and leaves. I'm like,
1: awesome. Talk about a guy that's only on an hour's sleep usually.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next, Jim. Seriously, yeah. If you if you
3: so working in we, a restaurant. It happens. Where can we find you on the web? Where can what you know, where can we look at your stuff? You know, where can we find out what's going on with uh, Robert Atkins?
4: Yeah, um uh, just go to robertatkinsart.com, so easy to remember. Uh, you can contact me through the website. Um, you know, I've got a gallery on DeviantArt that I tend to update regularly, or more regularly, and that's just ratkins.deviantart.com. Uh, the Runestone book is runestonecomic.com, and you can kind of look at some previews, and we had a free comic book day that came out that you can look into and kind of get a feel for the story. Uh, also, I'm part of that uh, studio group, Tsunami Studios. That's tsunami-studios.com, and that's just kind of like a conglomerate of artists. You know, we all got gather- galleries and ways to contact us through there. As far as like work that's coming out right now, uh, I just had the, the Ultimate Fantastic Four Requiem book came out this last Wednesday.
3: Yeah, I saw and it. And oh, that. I haven't had have a chance to pick that up yet.
4: But. Oh, that was a blast. I got to I got to work with Mark Morales on that. He was inking it, and it just come off of, like. Secret Invasion and four, and then eat my Fantastic Four book. I'm just like nah, that's nah,
3: awesome. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was cool. And then um, I have an amazing Spider-Man issue coming out in a couple weeks. That'll be six three. Oh, great!
1: Very cool. And back on GI Joe for thirteen, is it?
4: Yeah, as of issue thirteen through seventeen, uh, I've been doing the covers basically all throughout. So one through seventeen, I've I've got covers on, and. Uh, and then I'm also doing more work on top of, uh, uh, for the heroes. I have a two part series that'll come out pretty soon. So two, two story. That'll come out pretty quick. So. Very nice. Well,
3: anytime you want, you know, come on the show, if you want to just, you know, be one of the dudes and, you know, if there's something that we're, you know, we got coming up that, you know, you see we're talking about, I want to just kind of hang out and, and yak and, uh, you know, you know, be casual you know it, shoot us come else you know we'd love to have you.
4: oh yeah I mean yeah we just keep in touch because I've been I mean two of my favorite books right now are, are Thor and green lantern so I've been nice guys perfect so uh, yeah no, we'll keep in touch when you guys have stuff coming up I'd love to hop on so oh and if real quick if I could plug if you go to the runestone comic site um, I do I also do a weekly podcast with my friend and his brother that we're all doing ringstone together, but we kind of just we kind of talk about like the ins and outs of the industry, kinda a lot of the stuff I talked about tonight, but also like just things that I've learned about breaking in, dealing with self-publishing, like all that stuff. But then we also just kind of have a good time and are pretty goofy and do reviews of stuff. so Awesome. Well, we'll
3: definitely have have links to all this stuff when uh, when we publish this, and we'll you know, shoot you an email and let you know when it's up.
4: Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. That'd be awesome.
1: Definitely. All right, man. Have a good night. Enjoy the rest of the con.
4: Yeah,
1: thank you, right, yeah, thanks for having me,
4: guys. No problem. Anytime. All right. yeah, Talk to you soon.
1: Take care. Take care. Bye. Okay, so thanks again to Robert for taking that time with us. He was great. We had a lot of fun talking to him, and we appreciated, again, even that he had the kindness to reply, we were happy with. But to come on, and I mean, he's in a hotel room at a con, and he's he's real busy, and he was able to give us a little bit of time.
0: You know, I didn't think of that. He was, was he in Chicago for Chicago Yeah, Comic-Con? yeah. He
1: was in the I hotel room. That's awesome yeah at the Chicago Con. So uh so he's a busy guy and he was saying, you know, like he said that he's gotten so busy with the commissions and stuff just because of this whole GI Joe explosion. So he's not getting a lot of sleep, but he gave he gave us some time, which is really cool. So now I guess quickly we'll move on to the movie. Ken and I have seen the movie. Um and I will I will defer to Ken for some quick overall impressions.
0: I liked it. It was G.I. Joe live action. I never once thought that this isn't G.I. Joe. It, I, I just sat there with a smile on my face the whole time. I'm not saying I couldn't nitpick if I didn't want to, if I wanted to, but I was, I was just loving it.
2: Was it American enough?
0: You know what? I, that didn't bug me because I knew going in it was going to be NATO-based. They wanted to make it more international. Heck, even in the cartoon, in the later seasons of the cartoon, it was retitled G.I. Joe, an international hero instead of G.I. Joe, a real American exactly. hero. So, it's, it's, it, no, that didn't bug me at all. Although Adam, I did—if uh, you listen to it by now—I did uh, mention what you had said about some of the politicians, or whoever the idiots were, who were commenting on that.
2: How it, bizarre! How? Uh, here's, the, here's the thing: you can't have it both ways. You can't criticize Hollywood and then like expect more from them. Yeah. Whatever. But anyway, go ahead.
1: We spend so much time talking and thinking about this stuff right now that I'm like struggling sitting in theaters, like just watching a movie to watch it. If that if that makes any sense, like. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. The whole time I'm like preoccupied on like whether it's American enough and really you actually that actually thought no, about that I shouldn't say preoccupied but I did think about it it doesn't bother me but they definitely went out of their way to make it international like everybody had their own accent which you know whatever again it doesn't bother me but I did notice it the movie was a lot of fun I'm I'm not I'm not arguing that at all it for me for my taste it towed the line of too ridiculous. No, it didn't. not even not the action though, Ken. Not not the no. action. The action was fine. The action. I didn't mind the accelerator suits. I thought the, I thought the chase with the cars, as as crazy as it was, was cool. I think their CGI lacked a little bit. Like I think they might have bitten off more than they could chew, and like they couldn't actually produce the scene that they were trying
0: the to. The only place where the CG really came out to me, meaning it was bad, because again, if CG's done right, you don't see it. Uh, any animation, if you see it done right, you don't see. It. If it's done right, you don't see it. Um, I know that
2: I, 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 up was a completely different experience for me because I thought it was real.
0: Yeah, it was the um, it was the, <laughs> uh, the the only scene that really uh, stood out to me was the um, accelerator suits themselves when they were running. You know, but any human motion human motion is difficult to uh, to render. The vehicles and all that look like look like vehicles, so it's um, yeah.
1: I, I thought the plane was really bad. No, the, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah it was. Come not on. not I so it, bad it, that it was like... It looked like the work print of Wolverine, which I did not download. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing about the work print with Wolverine. That was pretty bad. And I said this before uh, before about Wolverine. If um, I, I wanted to see the movie after seeing that, because one, I actually enjoyed it to a, to a degree. But also I wanted to see some of those effect shots finished only to find out that a lot of the effect shots I wanted to see were the finished effects. So believe me, this Wolverine, the finished version was a lot worse on CG than, than this was. This was actually now, pretty good. I'm not saying it was great, but it was, it was pretty good. I'd even say it's above average.
2: Now I'm going to go see this thing tomorrow morning. So one of the things that I'm going to kind of like have on my mind is, you know, a lot of people on the internet, which I give complete credibility to, um, are, are yelling and they're calling the movie, uh, CGI Joe. Do you think that's valid? I mean, do you think they overdid it? I mean, no, you can
0: I, use it, I, I, I don't you know? think they overdid. I think they used it because they had to. If they wanted to achieve these, these, uh, you know, ability to have GI Joe has always been as much as it's been about the specialists, the specialties of each individual soldier. It's also about the equipment. Face it, it was a cartoon to sell toys, so it's always been about the vehicles and the gadgets and the equipment they had, and there was that. They had that in abundance in this movie. So, of course, you're going to need to use CGI. So, did it too much? I don't think it was too much. I don't think you can get away with doing it without CGI. So, you know, if people are going to get that bent out of shape because of the CGI instead of just enjoying the, the the fun popcorn action movie that's closing out of summer, you know, then that's that's their problem.
1: Again, my towing the line statement is was not the action. And this is where we're going to give a big spoiler alert. And if Russ and Adam want to hang up right now, we'll call them back in a minute. But Uh-oh. this is okay. this ah, is this is the the stuff that bothered me was, and I don't even want to call them continuity changes because I don't know the continuity. So not even knowing whether this was factual in terms of the books or not, the stuff that bothered me was like that it's everybody different. had to be everybody <laughs> had to be connected. Like Snake Eyes is Storm Shadow's brother. That's well, fine. That, that might that's be true, real. and that
0: that's okay. that's done. They have a okay, history fine. like that.
1: But Baroness Bar- is geek's ex girlfriend, ex fiance. Yeah. Yeah, and she turns and comes back to the Joe side at the end. She didn't turn. She fought off the programming of the and, nanobots. And don't Taku on me. It doesn't have to be all good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> believe she, me, you didn't hear my Green Lantern review. If you think it's got to be all good, they didn't. <laughs> they 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 turned her. She was mind controlled the whole time. We all know Baroness is downright evil. And and in yeah. this movie she was mind controlled and they turned her back at the end. I hated that. I hated that they couldn't just throw a hood over Cobra Commander's head at the end. They had to put a metal skull on him.
0: He had a metal mask in the cartoon too. He went back and forth between the two. What's the difference? He needed the hood.
1: I'm just saying that. And uh, what was it? There was another. There was another connection. Somebody knew somebody else. Um, the Cobra Commander himself. Yes, Cobra Commander himself is the brother of Baroness who fought with Duke in a previous war. It was like a lost
0: episode. Like everybody was connected. <laughs> are you glad? Are, are you glad you hung up now? You didn't, didn't hang up now, guys. I
2: don't care. I'll well, just uh, that, see.
0: You ruined it. The only thing I want
3: to know is. How many people parachuted out of the helicopter before
0: it exploded? We saw one at the very end. Yeah, we yeah. did see one parachute. And like, and what he called Marlon
4: Wayans,
1: he didn't bug me. I, it I thought it was good. Right.
0: Listen, I, you know, I had the same issues, and I said as much. You know, if I wanted to nick, pit, nick pick this oh, to nick death, pick. all yeah. those points you said are what's going to be. But at the end of the day, I enjoyed myself. You know, they're building up a new continuity. You know, I, there's been plenty of movies where I can separate, you know, comics, ca- comics or cartoons and movies and say, here's its own continuity, let it go on its own way. There's been plenty of movies where I was not able to let myself do that. Uh, Green Lantern was one of them. Uh, but in this case, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not married to Judge Lore, so if they want to build a new continuity for the movie purposes, fine, I'll run with it. I enjoyed it on the whole, and I wasn't going to let those points ruin it for me.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely did not ruin it for me. Go ahead, Adam, I'm sorry. Which,
2: um, didn't Warren Ellis, isn't he doing a new animated series online? Resolute. It's awesome. Holy, holy, that thing was crazy. I finished that up last night to kind of get ready for the movie on, um, on, on Monday when I'm going to go watch it. That thing, that was pretty crazy. I really enjoyed that. I would hope that they make, um, you know, additional ones to it, but, um, yeah, looking forward to it still. I mean, it, it's definitely a throwback. I, I was, you know, reading some reviews and stuff online and one of the headlines that was on, I think, dig or Reddit. Was um, uh, you know in his review of the movie, Roger Ebert didn't recall any specific details about GI Joe enough you know worth enough to talk about it, but he did mention that it was definitely better than Transformers 2. and, too, and that's I-
0: definitely <laughs> true. Now I will say if you aren't a fan of GI Joe or you don't know GI Joe to begin with, it is a very unforgettable movie because it really is just all about you know being GI Joe. I mean that's that's what makes it unique. Um, without the connection t- connection to GI Joe. Comics or cartoons or what have you. Um, there's nothing special about it, really.
1: Okay, so I think we're going to wrap this one up. Anybody else got anything?
3: So how many how many interlocking nys do you give? P.I. Yeah, Joe. Um, out of five,
1: I can I, I can stretch it out to three. I had fun. Definitely three out of five. I it wasn't like the the end reveals kind of bugged me. It it only bugs me. It doesn't bug me because they're changing it. It bugs me because why, like, unneeded changes. I mean, like, it's dumb, right? Right, like, it's thinking the audience, we're so dumb that we have to be able to connect all the pieces. Like, we can't, you know, we can't let it happen on its own. It has to be spelled out for us. That bothers me a little bit, but the action was great. It was fun. It definitely felt like the cartoon or playing with the toys or whatever, you know. three, four.
0: I mean, I'm gonna go to four. It's it's not the greatest thing in the world. It, it it's above average for me. I, it's it's a four. And now you know. And no one's half to battle. That's another thing. Just real quick, they handled those little moments without making them too cheesy. I think if they had gone, people had criticized the fact that you know they they have these black uniforms. You're not seeing anything unique about them. We saw it in their skill sets. We saw them what they can do. I think the knowing is half the battle line was handled a lot better than more than meets the eye was in the first Transformers movie. If you want to talk about forcing us, forcing something in there, you know all the nods you wanted to see um, were there. For sure.
1: All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Remember, as always, to check us out at hhwlod.com. Shoot us an email at comments at legionofdudes.com. And leave us a voicemail at 516-468-7912. Drop us a line, and we will try to get it on the show real soon. So next up, real quick, next uh, next week will be Captain America Part 2, and I think All-Star Superman Volume 2. Is that right? After that, right. Perfect. See you then.
2: Bye. there's trouble G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe is there. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra the enemy fighting to save the day. He never gives up. He's always there fighting for freedom over